Hi, and welcome to the Vancouver Life Podcast. This podcast is created to answer the most talked about questions when it comes to navigating the Vancouver real estate market. I'm your host, Dan Wartell, a licensed agent and accredited real estate investment advisor based here in Vancouver, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Dash. Hi, Dan. I'm also a local realtor, an exhausted father of two, husband of one, and really happy to be here. Let's get right into today's episode. Intervention is cracking down on short-term rentals here in British Columbia, namely Airbnbs, to the point where the vast majority of Airbnb rentals may completely disappear. And this is being done with the intention to, of course, free up homes for long-term renters. But are investors who are supplying these Airbnb units really the true villain here? Or, you know, maybe the real issue is being completely overlooked. We're going to discuss this new policy that has been proposed this week. And of course, along with some other major developments that have happened here in Canadian real estate and Canadian housing. And if you happen to be an investor that currently holds property or you're thinking about buying a property for the primary use being an Airbnb rental, you might want to know how this policy affects you personally. So please feel free to reach out to us at any of that contact information below. So let's dive right in and talk about this new Airbnb policy that has been proposed and in my opinion will all but certainly get approved. Well, quite simply, Premier David Eby and the Housing Minister, uh, also pro-housing if you will, Ravi Kalan, I think is how you pronounce his name, they announced this week on October the 16th their plan to ban short-term rentals on BC properties that aren't within the operator's principal residence. Okay, this is for this is a blanket policy for all of British Columbia, other than the smaller municipalities with populations under 10,000 people, um, plus 14 resort communities, which includes places like Tofino, Whistler, Asoyuz. They would not be subject to these new rules, but they could choose to opt in. So if these are passed, these rules will take uh, or kick in, if you will, they'll start on May the 1st of 2024. And the goal, of course, is to, you know, it's to discourage landlords and investors from taking, quote unquote, desperately needed suites off the long term rental market. Yes, this is coming at a time when the long term rental market rates are at all time highs. So understandably, mostly condos will be affected by this policy. Uh, but for reference, if you were to own a detached home with both a suite downstairs plus a laneway house, you are now only allowed to Airbnb one of the two if you're living upstairs, forcing the other one to, of course, be rented long term or lived in by yourself. So how many properties does this actually affect? Well, we look at the whole Airbnb market and short term market for all of British Columbia, and we're talking about 28,000 units. Of those 28,000, approximately 16,000 are listed year round, meaning chances are the vast majority of those 16,000 units are not also primary residents for the owners. When we look at how it affects like Vancouver and the core here, Airbnb stated that approximately a quarter of the listings in Vancouver are already unauthorized, approximately 1,800 listings. And these are understandably primarily in the downtown core. Now, how will this also affect the income? Because as a Airbnb property provider, you have to have a business license. And those license fees range from anywhere from 100 bucks to upwards of $2,500 over in Victoria per year to run that business license. So let's estimate a $500 
average per year business license to run Airbnb. And it's about $8 million in lost revenue to the province. Maybe not that much of a hit. So they're overseeing that for sure. Now, understandably, there are opponents to this new policy, namely Airbnb. And I'm going to read something here. It, it is a quote, and it comes from Alex Howell, who is the policy manager for Airbnb in Canada. So he said in a statement, the BC government's proposed legislation won't alleviate the province's housing concerns. Instead, it will take money out of the pockets of British Columbians, making travel more unaffordable for millions of residents who travel within BC and reduce tourism spending in communities where hosts are often the only providers of local accommodations. Okay. Understandably, Airbnb is going to oppose this. That is the official statement. So how many properties are we talking about? How much does this affect the overall housing market? Well, it's estimated that the total Airbnb listings in all of the, on all of our province here represents less than 1% of all rental units, which understandably isn't enough to meaningfully impact the vacancy rates and rental prices. 1%. You know what else happened that was 1% recently? The foreign buyer ban. Remember that? So or this year when the foreign buyer ban kicked in, it was uh, estimated to affect about or less than 1% of all property sales from the year before. And where are we since it's kicked in? Well, prices are higher than they were a year ago. So throw it on the top of the pile of other bans, policies, taxes, and whatnots that still have not truly affected housing prices here in Canada and definitely in BC. For those who decide to move forward after this passes and if they get caught, well, there are fines. Right now, apparently the fine, if you are um, not an officially registered or going against the existing policy rules within Airbnb in British Columbia, the fine is $1,000 per infraction. And that is being increased to $3,000 per infraction per day, per day. So it's, a, it's not a small number, right? If you were to get hit with that, obviously that's going to hurt your business. They have also said that they're going to create an enforcement unit to uh, basically follow up and say, hey, who's breaking these rules? Who's not? And as you could imagine, that will be a challenge. I mean, there's, there's a bit of an enforcement unit in play now. We don't hear too many stories about these fines getting pushed down. They're quite minimal. And then when people go to court, it takes a long time. As reference or for reference, New York City effectively already has an Airbnb ban. And how is it working for them? Well, they've seen less than 2% of its 20,000 operators register under these new rules. So 2% buy-in is very, very low. And so of course, what's happened? Sure, we can't use Airbnb. Well, there are other options for these people, meaning they're now moving their listings to places like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, where maybe it's a little bit less regulated, harder to track down the actual owner. Okay, so let's take a bit more of a holistic or open-minded approach here. So who, who wins from this potentially? Well, of course, the intent is a, a condo owner who's going short-term will just say, oh yeah, no problem. I'll now rent long-term and let's open up all of these properties to long-term renters. Well, that's likely not the case. And the reason I make that argument is because if you've ever tried to rent long-term in Vancouver, it is very likely that you are running a cash negative business. It is very hard to be cash positive in this landscape with prices where they are and interest rates where they are and rents where they are. So a lot of investors decide to go short-term because they can almost double their income, making them cash positive. So if their option is to guarantee to lose money every month, are they just going to say, okay, no problem? Or will they maybe list that condo for sale? My guess is that they're going to list. 
because they're going to move that capital elsewhere where they can make a profit. Okay, so is that really going to open up inventory or are we just going to sell condos to another end user? Again, fine, you're opening up inventory, but which side is losing here? Well, sure, the investors are potentially quote unquote losing because a lot of people and some of the stories that have already come to light are that people have bought these, these investment properties and Airbnb them for their retirement, right? If you get to the point where your condo's paid off and you're clearing four or five grand a month, you can live off that. A lot of people can, and maybe they're not squelching off the government. They're making their own retirement plans here. And come to think of it, of course, guess what? There are a bunch of short-term management rental companies out there that guess what? Their business is erased overnight. And then of course, as we touched on earlier before, tourism will likely be dramatically impacted as well. We know what the the rates are here for hotels. We know what the demand is for Airbnb. That's why there's 28,000 of them you know, provincially here because there is that demand. So tourism may get deeply affected and they might just go to other places where they can rent below hotel rates and get Airbnbs and other provinces, states, what have you. So what's the opinion of our housing minister and our premier? Well, the housing minister said on Monday in an official report that there's a lot of ways for investors to make money. And what we're saying is that our valuable housing stock is not the place you should be doing it. You should probably be thinking about a new profit scheme in the near future. So no empathy for investors. I understand their MO here, fine. But this was further exacerbated by David Eby, who stated as well, if you're an investor and you're buying three, four, five homes to use as short-term rentals to make wealth, the message here is that it is no longer allowed. So more than shots across the bow, it's a shot to the gut for investors that have been trying to be housing providers here. And it's terrifying to think of, hey, if they can pen this policy overnight, what might be next? Who is the next target? You know, why buy into Canadian housing to provide long-term rentals? Because maybe they'll change that rule too to, I don't know, make it a minimum five years. I don't want to get off track here, but you get the idea how investors that provide housing are now feeling a little bit stunned and, and, and shocked, if you will. Within this policy, nowhere within it was it mentioned the fact of slowing down or capping the rate of immigration into this country. Obviously, that's a bit of a sidebar here, but let's just think about this. On one side, you've got our immigration man, uh, minister saying, okay, great, let's pile 1.2 million people into the country with no housing plan, but then turn around and penalize the investors who are basically creating their own retirement instead of squelching off the government. So again, I know what they're trying to do. I think you get from my tone which side I'm on. I'm not finding it very fair, but you know, ultimately, will this have meaningful change? Well, you know, they're obviously trying. They're doing lots of stuff here. They've, um, you know, obviously put forth the Plex plan here. They've taxed this. They've taxed that. But really, let's think of it the other way. How much of our current housing crisis was created by Airbnb? And also, let's not forget that there was already previous Airbnb regulations put in place in Vancouver back in 2018. How well did that work out? Okay, so I, I mean, it's easy to paper policies, but it's obviously the enforcement that matters. So if we already have policies in place and they're not working, what are the chances of this working? I don't know. Not my, not my position, but um, we'll find out. But either way, what they're doing, of course, is taxing the demand instead of fixing the supply. And uh, that's my long-winded way of saying that's what's happening with the Airbnb policy, right? I'm sure you've got some thoughts as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't know if it's going to be anything new from what our, our listeners have, have heard in previous um, weeks. But, you know, for, for me, um, this is, again, so a couple of things. Housing's really loud right now. 
right? The cost of living and then the cost of housing is extremely loud. And so I think ministers and, and public officials need to be seen as doing something about it, <clears throat> even if it means, you know, net negative or net zero response or, or, or impact on, on the housing. They just need to be seen as doing something. And why not go after those pesky investors who, you know, uh, who apparently have five homes that they can afford to buy in this marketplace that they're Airbnb. Uh, it, it, you know, I don't believe some of this stuff. And uh, I'd also love to, to hear what our housing minister thinks. Um, uh, he, you know, when he said there's lots of ways for investors to make money. Uh, okay, well, maybe list off a few other solutions that you're not going to take away. You know, uh, so I don't think politicians are really thinking this through. A lot of free flowing capital, the things that build our houses come from investors, right? And again, there's an inconvenient truth to that. The housing, the, the housing is not going to be solved by politics. It's going to be solved by private industry building the supply. So you can policy change all you want. You can listen to the hotel lobbyists who sound like they've gotten into David Ebby's ear. Uh, but, you know, this is in many ways the public sector coming down on the private sector for housing solutions that the private sector has come up with out of the poor planning over the last 25 and 30 years of the public sector. It's penalizing people who find solutions and, uh, you know, painting them as if they're the real problem when, like you said, Dan, this is less than 1%, right? So again, I think this is, uh, you know, voices into a microphone to make people, you know, uh, feel like their their elected officials are doing something for them. But again, like you said, when you don't look at, uh, you know, the demand side, when you look, don't look at the immigration side, and you don't do anything on supply, uh, or you can't incentivize the builders who we need so desperately, and you take all their potential away from, you know, making any money, where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go to markets where they can. You know, they're going to go to Alberta, they're going to go to different provinces. And then on top of that, you're going to hurt our BC wineries, you're going to hurt our BC restaurants in those areas. Uh, if I wanted to go and rent a boat now, <clears throat> you know, I'm not, I'm going to have to compete with hotel rates. So I'm going to have to spend what I would normally spend on a local business. I'm now going to spend on a much bigger business so that I can line their pockets with over overheated rates. So for me, I think this is a terrible decision. Uh, it does not speak to any foresight. It really is just a knee-jerk reaction to the loud voices that uh, want something done about housing. Uh, and to make it look like they're doing something, and it's not. So anyhow, let's get a little bit into supply here, because uh, speaking of which, <laughs> um, BC housing starts fell 18% from last month, and single detached starts fell 10% month over month, and multifamily starts fell 21%. Starts in the province are down 25% below levels from September of 2022. This is also the, you know, primarily due in part to, um, you know, restrictive capital and the flow of capital and just, you know, these projects not penciling out, but it's also a, a result of government intervention and people just, you know, developers, people who invest here, they don't want to do this anymore, right? So they're going to go somewhere else and you're going to see other, other provinces prosper as a result of that or other countries prosper as a result. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, you know, with developers pulling back at a time when immigration is accelerating, you know, 
this problem is going to get worse. And the things that our elected officials are doing are not making it better, right? Uh, so here's a real-time example. This was uh, October 16th in the Vancouver Sun. Progress has stalled on three large downtown residential high-rises, totaling more than 900 new homes and $52 million in payments to City Hall. With developers asking council to extend deadlines on these projects. The projects, which received zoning or sorry, rezoning approval two years ago but have not moved ahead, really illustrate today's difficult marketplace. The government Sorry, with government aligned on the need to dramatically boost housing construction, such delays show how market reality can clash with the political hopes and promises that were fed all the time. Hence, uh, you know, four million new homes in the next six years or something crazy. People will say the developer is not moving forward because of the market. It has nothing to do with the city process, but that's not true. It's both because both city process uh, sorry, because the city process slowed us down to the point where we couldn't meet the market window, which is what one of the developer presidents said. Essentially, the numbers that they had penciled for these projects, they don't work anymore. So why would a, why would a developer build at a loss so that they could no longer build anymore? They won't build, right? And people can't afford to buy. So, you know, we're, we're, we're at a standstill here. Right. And, and these solutions like banning Airbnb, that doesn't do anything. Yet 1.2 million people are still coming to the country. Right. So the developers are believed to be asking for extensions, ideally buying more time until rates come down. They have to make these work. Otherwise, they'll go broke. If granted, the city will win again because they will charge prime plus 2% for the outstanding CACs after six months. So you got to remember, that's $52 million that they're going to collect interest on. What's some of the solutions that could happen here? Well, maybe we could remove all or some of the 30% of taxation on new builds would be a good start. Uh, or you could also look at the $52 million in CACs. That's another one. But to kind of sum this up, you know, I feel like the more it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Dan. I don't know if you if you ever watched Star Wars, um, but Princess Leia used to be talking to uh, uh, the dark side, and and she used to say, you know, the the tighter you you squeeze the rebellion, the more they slip through your fingers, and that is exactly what's kind of happening here. I feel like the you know this is like a, a thug of a government that is trying to tighten their grip on policy on their power because it is slipping through their fingers and you know we need we need private industry here we cannot make them the villain right we have to look at a cohesive way of solving this problem and the way it's currently going is horrendous in my opinion well, I didn't expect a Star Wars reference today but the analogy sounds pretty spot on so <laughs> thanks for that one Okay, so now I want to do a simple supply and demand economics practice here because I want to talk about rent versus population, and that's rental rate versus population growth. So there's a couple of charts here that we're going to share. And for those of you that are listening and not watching, I'll, I'll do my best to kind of describe what we're looking at. But if you look at the annual change in immigration, 
uh, over the last, let's say, four or five years here, you'll notice that it bottoms out in April of 2021. And of course, that was us coming out of the pandemic. So it, it was a real big drop off. And then, of course, it went ripping to all time highs where it is today. And so if we look at annual change, it bottomed out, I don't know, around uh, 150,000 and has now skyrocketed to over 1.2 million with the long-term average being about 300,000. So which goes to show we're, we're about uh, you know four times above the, the sorry long-term average here. But interestingly, if you were to look at the rental rate chart in Canada, it does the exact same thing. You could almost overlay them and they're verbatim in the sense that rates, rental rates, they bottomed out uh, in in their recent cycle, at the same time, April of 2021 was the most recent bottom in the rental rate cycle, and then they took off like a rocket booster and are now also currently at all time highs and climbing. In fact, we just looked to last month's data. September hit a new record rate nationally here, where the average rental property in Canada is two thousand one hundred and forty nine dollars. Never been higher. That is up for reference, um, up about 27% since that recent cycle low, uh, going from $1,675 up to where it is today. Uh, but yeah, Airbnb, that's the real problem here, <laughs> not this record immigration. You know, again, it's there's no singular um, factor, of course, that causes high rents. But this one, again, when you see it laid over and you see it verbatim to the month, they bottom out and today they are both at all time highs. It's a pretty big indicator of supply and demand always being sort of the most obvious reference here of what's going to keep pushing it up. On top of this, there is further pain coming. And what I mean by that is there's another beautiful chart here that is the annual change in population versus housing completions. Every year, X amount of homes are completed and built, and every year, X amount of people come into the country. These two are on a relatively similar path dating back to 1980. All right, we've got uh, 43 years of data here, and they go and they go and they go. And then, of course, um, the population starts going higher 15, 16, 2015, 2016, drops off during the pandemic, and then skyrockets, as I mentioned. But what doesn't skyrocket is housing completions. And so like what Ryan just touched on here is the fact that now the starts are pulling back too. And it doesn't take much to recognize that when you're just continuing to put in four times the amount of people, but not changing how many homes are being built or even pulling back on how many homes are being built, does anybody else see where this problem is going to go? There's going to be more demand and less supply. And that typically means upward pressure on prices. You know, Dan, when um, everyone starts going through their refi in 25 and 26, and we, we have staggering numbers of, of refinancing taking place, uh, a lot of people, you know, if they have to sell their home, and then they're going to go and try and buy something but more affordable, they're going to be up against millions of more people, you know, uh, and how does that how, do, uh, how does that help, right? That's going to further push price. It's just in a lull right now. So we'll see how it pans out. But my goodness, these, these graphs that we're talking about, they're insane to look at. Um, but I do want to talk about a little bit of good news, <laughs> and that's our inflation report. Um, even though it continues to rise, it rose by 3.8%, so down from uh, down 0.2 from 4% the month before. Expectations were 4%, so it beat that. 
that's good news. Uh, shelter costs, to, just to break this up a little bit, shelter costs were up 6%. So the same increase as August, uh, driven by mortgage interest costs up by 31% from last year. It's still staggering. Along with rents up also a staggering 7%. Grocery prices continued their trajectory up, although to a lesser extent, 5.8% year over year in September, down from 6.9% in August and 8.5% July. So nice to see those coming down, although still rising. This unexpectedly cool inflation report maybe gives hope to the Bank of Canada that they don't need to tighten as much as uh, we had expected. Uh, we should see bond yields continuing to soften uh, following more and more of this information. We'll see. Um, markets now put the majority of, of uh, odds on the bank holding rates steady for the remainder of the year. So we'll see if that actually pans out. Uh, I think it certainly will. Uh, I believe our economy is uh, definitely slowing down. There's a lot of indicators that show that. Uh, one last thing that I think maybe we'll, 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 I'll bring up here, Dan, and we can kind of talk about it. Um, MNP, uh, every quarter releases a consumer price index. Um, and, uh, it's, it, these guys are an insolvency firm and they, they look at, um, quarterly surveys that track how Canadians are feeling about their debt. And based on the last Ipsos polling of more than 2000 Canadians, um, so 28% of respondents indicated their ability to deal with additional percentage point of a rate hike had worsened from the previous quarter. Some 37% of respondents say they couldn't absorb another $130 in interest payments on their debt. That's up from 32% from the last one. Uh, we hear this quite often, but more than half of respondents to the poll said they're $200 or less away from not being able to meet all of their financial obligations. And Canadians now have an average of $674 left at the end of every month, uh, down $100 from the last quarter. Uh, some good news from this report was that the average hourly wages have risen by 5%, which is offsetting some of this, um, some of this new, I guess, weight of the debt. Uh, however, um, <laughs> It was warned that um, you know recent signs of cooling in the economy will then effectively lead to job layoffs uh, in the coming months, uh, and you know so any kind of raise that we might have seen over the last little while could be nullified by companies actually just wiping out the employment altogether as they move into a more survival-based instinct, right? So I mean, you only have to look at places like LinkedIn and Scotiabank and um, even Desjardins uh, have all cut. Um, quite large amounts of jobs in, in you know the recent weeks here because they know we're moving into a recession. So uh, you know we do hear about these things, especially at this time when we're heading into a recession. So a lot of this may not be that new. Uh, that being said though, um, you know Canadians are feeling it and that's what the report's saying. Very fascinating and really speaks of course to a lot of the sentiment that we have going on across the landscape here and it's really really going to affect how things move forward and one special date to mark on your calendars of course is next wednesday october the 25th there is a rate announcement that day i think our vote is definitely on a rate hold which will instill a bit of stability feeling and, and maybe boost a little bit of consumer confidence i think any win is a win at this point uh we do have a special episode planned that day along with the number one 
mortgage broker for all of Bank of Montreal in Canada. And Mikhail Ferrer will be with us for that special day. And um, yeah, market-wise, kind of fascinating what's happening right now. Micro update. We have very obviously slow sales volumes, but prices are shocking to the upside again, if you can believe it. Median and average prices so far for the month of October are only five grand under the all-time high. It's almost Has- unfathomable, hard to track. We'll <laughs> see where it washes out at the end of the month. But this market surprises every single month. There's always something interesting to talk about, and we are glad to share it with you. And we're so glad that you are here to watch and listen and join us through this journey. So thank you, as always, for tuning in, watching, and listening. And we will see you on this one next week. Bye. That wraps up this edition of the Vancouver Life Podcast. For more information on this podcast and to access a ton of free downloads, investment opportunities, current market info, and homes for sale, you can find it all at www.thevancouverlife.com. Thanks, and we look forward to bringing you more podcasts about Vancouver real estate.